This is your coffee break. Hey friends, I'm back again this week and I have with me uh, a person who is laughing on the other side. And so of course I'm a sympathy laugher, so I'm laughing too. Uh, his name is Mark Million and he is the host of the Hidden Scribes podcast. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, but you're not going to put that laughing just off on me. See what happened, dear <laughs> listeners, was that Sarah, as she was counting in uh, our intro, her head bobbed ever so sprightly to the music in her head for the intro. And that's just hilarious. <laughs> so she was the cause of my laughing. So she might have been simply laughing with me, but I was laughing at her and getting tongue tied in the process. So. I love it. And I, I love that you picked that up. I think I do that every time and like no one else <laughs> maybe has ever noticed that I do that. It was um, like the most bundle of cute thing I've had in my morning thus far. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to have you here on the show. We've spoken before and that was on the subject of Hidden Scribes, which is your podcast, which I would love to hear a little bit about for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it. Sure. So the Hidden Scribes is a podcast where I talk to writers who have not been published or have not gained representation as of yet. And I take a sample of their work. It could be something that they finished or something that they're currently working on and just something that they're proud of. And I add sound effects and music to it, basically turning it into like a micro audiobook. And then after the selection plays, I talk to the author about their background, uh, maybe have them flesh out a little bit more of their story, um, talk to them where they'd like to see their writing go and where they'd like to see their writing take them their aspirations as it were. And uh, yeah, that's the podcast. And then alongside of it, every few writer submitted episodes, I offer up a chapter of a screenplay that I wrote that I adapted into a podcast that is, uh, I guess it's science fiction -y, uh, or contemporary fiction with a science fiction bent. And uh, so I offer the platform um, for both for the writer submitted works and then for my own uh, narrative fiction podcast for the first three chapters. So um, that's what it's like. Sarah did us the honor of being one of the writer submitted uh, episodes. She uh, allowed me because she technically doesn't qualify because she is so very published in so many different ways. Um, but because the uh, Girl in Space podcast was her um, first uh, fiction work that she had kind of put out there we felt like, oh, well, that could make a good space for, to have her on the show. And she was generous with enough and kind enough to allow us to have her. And she let me take her baby, uh, the first episode of the Girl in Space podcast, and remix it from an audio and sound effects perspective. And so we uh, have that episode up on uh, the feed. And it uh, turned out pretty well. And she was a, a really great guest, giving a lot of practical resources about writing and, and the, the treasure of it all. <laughs> It was an honor to be featured on your show. Um, for those of you who haven't heard it, go out there, listen to it. You'll hear both of our beautiful dulcet tones um, mm -hmm. in the feed. Um, but I love what you're doing. I love representing writers who are maybe not currently being represented. What inspired you to just like kind of take charge and, and create this podcast? Well, they are my people. <laughs> like <laughs> like Moses, uh, these are my people. I am also uh, someone who falls into that category who has been really close to publishing deals in the past. Um, and I've published things like e-magazine articles and things like that online, um, but n none of my like own original uh, fictional work. And so I have a very close connection uh, to that struggle and to what that looks like. 
And I thought that there could be other people out there who could use some type of push to kind of motivate them to finish. Or um, even if they uh, were finished, uh, motivate them to share their work. Because I know one of the crippling things for me for a lot of my uh, quote unquote career as a writer, I thought if I could get someone to put their trust in me to kind of put their voice out there in a way that they felt comfortable with, that that might in turn um, make them feel more comfortable with giving it to a broader audience and feel not only more confident in their writing, but the process of putting it in front of other people's eyes to either get critique or feedback or just the simple process of just, you know, having it in front of the world in a different way. Um, because coming outside of your own head and having it exist outside of your own imagination and outside of your own private time, I think, uh, is really, really important. So hopefully we can be that resource for people as well as, you know, uh, with getting a publisher or, or getting an agent being so competitive these days. If you are in a bracket where a publisher is kind of looking at you or an agent is kind of looking at you and you have this little bit of extra where you can say, hey, I was on this podcast. You've never heard of it. But, you know, my episode has X amount of downloads and you can hear it here. And some of that is already kind of on the plate for you. Then, hey, then all the better. I love it. You're helping to validate people who I think are looking for that validation. That's so awesome. I also heard you call yourself a quote unquote writer. Oh, well, I said quote unquote career. Oh, career. Yes, yes. Tell me tell yeah. me more about that. Well, so I've written a lot of things that uh, many people have never seen. <laughs> so um, I fall into a camp of people who like, uh, like I saw there's a fantasy group of fantasy novels I've been working on, right? So the first one um, has been pretty much done for quite some time. The second one is about 80% done. Um, but I've never shared them with anyone because I'm still caught up in the dreaded world building. So like the first one continues to go through edits and the second one continues to go through like what feel like never ending edits and so forth and so on. So if I were to take a percentage of the amount of my time in my life that I've devoted to writing or um, how many pages I have underneath my belt, you know, I'm a writer. <laughs> I write a lot. But, uh, you know, to call it a career uh, to me, one, it would need to be shared Two, it'd be great if you got paid for it, you know, and the list goes on of, of where I feel I've earned the right, you know, to say that I have a career in writing. So I've just gotten to a place, and I think we actually talked about this on um, the episode you were on, where I've gotten to a place where despite not having achieved those things, I'm very comfortable calling myself a writer, but I'm certainly not in a place where I could say uh, I have a career <laughs> as a writer. That hasn't come yet. So that is uh, my dissembling quotes. That is a fair distinction to make. Um, and I, and I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you sharing the fact that like, yeah, I've written all, I've written pages and pages and pages and here's what's holding me back. And boy, part of me wants to say that like, oh, don't let it hold you back. But part of me also really understands all the emotion that's kind of caught up in there in that world building. What's holding you back with that world building? Is it painful to slog through? Is it exhausting? Is it just, are you kind of done with it at this point and you just don't feel like moving on with it? Or what's what's really there? Well, it's not that I've stopped. It's just that it seems um, never ending. I continue to, to plug away at it and in small chunks at times. And sometimes, you know, what, what will happen at times is that you'll talk yourself into, you know what, I only have an hour. It'll take me half an hour just to kind of get my mind into it, which only leave me 30 minutes to really do it. So I shouldn't use this hour for that. I should use this hour for something else. That will happen. So I usually try to have at least two hours that I can set aside so that I can actually work, work. But I do think that that's a hindrance. I do think that when I, even if I have 30 minutes, I should just 
do something because it would push the needle a little bit further. And I can say that, you know, I've, I've accomplished a lot of that recently. Like I've gotten a lot of that closer to what I, what I feel like is my ultimate finish line. Um, but the work just continues. Gosh, I understand that so much. And I appreciate you saying it's finding the time. I'll do the same thing. And mine's gotten to the point where I'll look at my time and I'll say, okay, it's like one o'clock now and I don't have to go into work until three, two hours. Well, you know, that's not even really enough to really get into it. And I, and I understand that so much because I want to be in the zone. And for me, it takes a while to get into the zone while I'm writing. It takes a while to find your flow and your rhythm. And then knowing that you're going to be just like forcibly pulled out of that is kind of like painful before it even happens. You're writing fantasy novels and it sounds like you are more than one book in. You are, you said even two or even three books in. It's going to be five books total. And the first book is like 99% finished. And the second book is about 80% finished. So this is a planned series. Tell me a little bit more about how you got into writing. I always like to ask, I didn't do this at first um, with your episode because I wanted to jump in to talk about Hidden Scribes, but um, tell me a little bit about your personal journey as a writer. What got you into writing? Um, What inspires you? What keeps you going? Dungeons and Dragons was probably what first got me into storytelling. I was introduced to it at a really, really young age. My mom came home from a book fair one time and like book fairs for me, that was like Christmas at school. Like when the book fair would take place, it was like all the shiny books that were out to buy. I was like, I was saving up lunch money for weeks and weeks and weeks knowing that the book fair was coming so that I could just get all those glossy new paperback. (laughs) Just, you know, just dive and gorge myself on all that, all those new books. But um, my mom came home from a book fair one time uh, that she kind of, I think, ran across while she was uh, taking classes. And um, it was a Monster Manual 2 from the original um, Advances and Dragons. And at the time, I wasn't playing Dungeons and Dragons. I was really, really young. And um, so the rest of it was Greek, like the, all the stats and whatnot for the monsters and whatnot, like armor class. Like, what's an armor class? <laughs> like, all those other things. But, like, the pictures were, like, really interesting. And they really, like, tied into things I was already kind of interested in as far as fantasy was concerned. And it worked like a codex for a long time. I would try to decipher what all this stuff meant. Because I could read the descriptions fine, like as it was describing, oh, this is Cat Lord, and this is what he does, and this is what he what he's about, and this is his personality. But like all the things that references abilities and whatnot were just complete, like didn't make any sense to me. So I would just kind of spend time with this book over the years. And then finally somebody um, on my block, I grew up in Brooklyn, um, was playing Dungeons and Dragons and asked me if I wanted to play. And I sat down, I started playing. I was like, oh, wow, this is a really, really cool use of time. <laughs> and, uh really, really got interested in it. And then um, whoever was DMing uh, couldn't make it to our session. And so somebody asked if I could DM. And I was like, I guess. Um, I just have to tell stories, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I wasn't really sure like what, like, what mechanics kind of went into it. And they were like, oh, that's a little bit more complicated than that. And like, they passed me like some of his books. And it was like this moment of destiny because one of the books that they passed me was the monster manual too oh that's and I was awesome like, dad what this is <laughs> like <laughs> never having made the connection and i was like oh my god i was like oh i can run a game off of this i know all about these people <laughs> and absolutely yeah you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that and you're gonna do this and they were uh they were really 
taken with the session uh, to the point where when the guy came back, like I became the new dungeon master of <laughs> and like straight ganked it from him. <laughs> and uh, I'd gone on to be uh, a DM everywhere I went. Um, so when I moved to Florida, I uh, recruited some cats into uh, to my DMing circle and um you know, play well into adulthood. Uh, I haven't played in a really long time now, uh, in part because of that world building kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and like just you know using your time because D and D can take up so much of your time, mm-hmm. um, and all like by accident. And then you know, like because D and D is definitely one of those things where it's like if I got two hours to play, I'm not like playing D and D. No, yeah, yeah. You need at least <laughs> you know, like six hours. You need at least six hours. Um, and there's just never in my life these days where I I, can, I have six hours where I can justify like doing that right now but i'm hoping to to get to a place uh one day where where i can but that was um where it started and uh that collaborative type of storytelling was just such an ignition for my imagination in in so many ways and eventually i got to the place where i was like you know i feel like i could write this i could i could put these things down on paper and it would be pretty cool and so that's what i did um and so some of the very first things i ever wrote were some of the things that wound up being in the first fantasy book i love it and i think you maybe know this about me i'm also um a big D player i'm in a i I'm do in a... i saw polyhedrals the other day on a on a, on a post <laughs> uh yes and Boy, I love that you refer to it as collaborative storytelling because that's that's exactly what I love most about it. Um, I have a 3.5 game that I'm playing right now and then a Pathfinder game and then my husband's trying out 5.0 and just both of us look forward to that as just like, hey, we're going to get together with friends and we're going to tell a story together and it's so rich and fulfilling and it builds such great friendships. So gosh, I identify with that so much. I got to say that a lot of my friends um, have transitioned to five and it feels like a betrayal (laughs) because 3.5 was just like so perfect to me in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've never played five, but like my sense of it is that it's just it's like a dumbed down version. (laughs) So like I'm fairly judgmental about this thing that I've never actually (laughs) tried to enjoy. Oh, I love that. I also love that you said it's the ignition for imagination. Um, and I, I think that's so true for, for so many things. A lot of people get into writing because they read, um, which is exactly what you were doing. But also you took it a step further and you began like creating in your mind with this. I love that you call the Monster Manual a codex. Like that's just what a cool way to start writing. And I think that a lot of listeners out there will identify with that as well. You'd mentioned world building for your novels and also world building for DMing, which I guess I should explain for those of you not into Dungeons and Dragons, a DM is a dungeon master or a GM is a game master. And that's sort of the person that designs the the game. That's the person who designs the puzzles and gives you characters to interact with and all that stuff. So when you talk about world building, what does that mean for you? So for instance, my world has a very particular aesthetic, like kind of like, you know, it, my world is like the Wakanda of D&D, right? And so there are people of color that are prominently rolled, but also in the sense, in the same way that um, Black Panther took a very real um, issue that faces people of color every day and made it the core of their narrative structure. Um, my world tr- tries to do that in a lot of the same ways. And so... For instance, the dominant 
empire um, on the world are people or black people who used to be slaves, but uh, after this great cataclysm, they've become like the dominant force of the planet and all things economic and otherwise kind of are routed through them as a result. And there's a lot of resentment of that from people who are of a different tribe and who want to bring back the status quo from, you know, pre cataclysm type of situations. And so in the, in the, at the heart of our game, we're still playing with a lot of these really complex issues and seeing how that would interact in this society that where you have, you know, magic that's rampant and all these other fantastical creatures, but they all kind of play their part in this social dynamic that I explore and religion, for instance, like, you know, atheism is a thing in a world where you can beseech the divine for, for power. And, you know, so there are characters who explain it away as saying, Oh, well, you know, magic is a force that can be tapped into. And what you think you're, you're referring to is, is God, but it's not God. It's just this fount of, of magical energy. And it kind of deals with this whole idea of, you know, what is your faith based on? So that even in a world where God is, quote unquote, right in front of your face, because, you know, you, he bestows these powers on you and whatnot. How could someone then question it, his authenticity? And, and the idea being that, well, uh, sentient creatures capable of accessing that would probably also deal with that particular question in all kinds of interesting ways that you just can't take for granted or just assume that, you know, if you have this kind of power that's derived from here and this kind of power that's derived from there, that they're just going to say, oh, well, no, that clearly that's evidence of God where, you know, that might not necessarily be the case. And so world building for me is extrapolating all of these things that we deal with in the real world, putting it in a fantasy scape and allowing all that fantasy to have its room to breathe, but also juxtaposed against some real world decisions and, and real world complexities because it's made the storytelling that much richer. So when you're you know, fighting this hobgoblin, you know, it's not just about that. It's about the stakes that are at play because of the circumstances under which you might be fighting that hobgoblin and what's, what's, a, what's a consequence of that and, and what, what's going to happen to people when they hear about this and, and so forth and so on because all of those things are embedded into the fabric of, of the game. And so that part of the world building of fleshing that out, fleshing out what my religions look like and how they're practiced and who practices them and how they practice them differently on this coast than they do on that coast and all that minutia is what I specifically mean by world building. Thank you for sharing that with us. That's such a rich description. And I'm curious what that looks like. So you draw a lot of that from social dynamics. You draw a lot of that from things that you've seen. How does that look when you start to create it? Like, do you physically write down like a history of the place or do you do some mind mapping or what does that look like as you create the, this world with its sort of different dynamics and structures in place? There is literally like a Bible where um, there is uh, an entry for all 70 countries wow. and what their relationships with are with the countries most proximal to them, why those relationships exist the way that they do, what their agendas are who their enemies are, um, and all the points that kind of branch off from that. So yeah, it's like, you know, all together, it's, you know, literally thousands and thousands of pages <laughs> of, this, of this history of this place. Um, there are there are notes on all the greatest artists, um, whether those be painters and sculptors. So like, there's a hundred, the hundred greatest painters list, there's a hundred greatest sculptors list, a hundred greatest playwrights list. And so, like, when people are referring to people, those people are real. Like, those people have a place in history and they have a, a, a contribution to history that they are known for. 
so yeah, it's like it's literally like an Encyclopedia Britannica of the world of Kemp <laughs> that that uh, that just exists um, in my Microsoft Word documents. <laughs> That is, that's awesome. And I've talked to so many different writers who have that, like, they call it, the, like you said, their story Bible. They're, uh, I have one for Girl in Space. It's next to me here. It's probably about four inches thick. I print it out. So for somebody who's maybe just starting out or they want to write fantasy or science fiction, or maybe, maybe they're just a little bit intimidated, where do they start? Because creating a story Bible, creating the, you know, the hundred most famous poets and artists and such can be really intimidating. Where's a good place to start with world building? Well, I would say don't do what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I don't think that, that is either a recipe for success or necessarily good use of your time. I'm stuck with it because I'm dealing with that whole like sunken time fallacy. Oh, <laughs> yes. Like, you know, like I've already spent this much time I have to finish. Like I'm aware that it's insane. And I, sh- I should just stop and just stop. But um, I'm stuck with my uh, own little neuroses and maladies. And, and dear listeners, you should not follow me down this rabbit hole. You should absolutely like, you know, right. I was listening to um, John August's podcast launch the oh, other day. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's uh, a really famous screenwriter and he just wrote his first novel and it's um, middle age fiction um, akin to like Harry Potter and whatnot. And uh, it was breathtaking to hear that what he did to write it was he sat down one day in a hotel room and just started writing and like had no idea where the story was going necessarily and just, just started writing. And then six chapters in, he submitted it to a publisher. It was like, Hey, well, you guys think maybe there's something here that you'd like to <laughs> maybe think about? And the publisher based in part because of who he was and what kind of cash he already brings to it was like, sure. Yeah, we'll do this. And like, you know, that's actually the healthiest and best way to go about it. You know, one of the things I think that wind up being really intimidating is that if you're someone who has the aspiration to be published, you start out and you think that you have to do everything yourself because it just it seems like there's no room for error. It seems like there's no room for you to not have the perfect story that someone's going to be interested in. And what I've kind of learned as I've gotten closer um, to people who have situated themselves in those places more firmly is part of the reason why publishers take such a big cut of what you eventually will make is because there are hundreds of people working to make your book successful Um, from the copy edits to the deeper dive edits to the marketing to all these things. So while you should have a a product that's really polished, Mm -hmm. you don't feel like you don't necessarily need to have this perfect resonating, you know, tome of truth that, you know, just exists perfectly in the universe. You know, it can be flawed and it can have its holes. But as long as you're consistent, I think, with the storytelling and with the quality of the writing itself, I think that you'll be able to engage someone who's a stranger to your story to invest in it. And I think that we too often become perfectionists. And that perfect that 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 whole idea of great is the enemy mm. of, of of getting something actually done. <laughs> well, you know, we, we we should really try to stay away from that as much as possible um, and get our ideas out there because where we're not wasting time per se, like all, all that time is being well spent, but you could be doing it more productively by, by building that kind of support around you, by invest, getting someone to invest in what your story is and who you are and not feeling like you're just on an island. Absolutely. I kind of did a, a crash test on that myself with Girl in Space. I got the, the first episode done 
And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be okay putting this out there. Kind of like you said earlier, done is better than perfect. And so I just kind of threw it out there and I ended up being really happy that I did that. Of course, now when I listen to it, it's not perfect. It's, you know, I can hear that I'm just starting out and I can hear that it's not great, but that's not what matters right now. Like what matters right now is like you said, that you continually create something and you're continually in production of something and you're sharing it with people and you're kind of moving forward with your creative life and your creative development. And so I appreciate you saying that and sorry if I'm like reading my own story into that a little bit, but, um, but no, you're absolutely right. As a matter of fact with, um, so the Trinity podcast was, uh, something I mentioned earlier, as far as a script that I wrote, I turned into a, um, a podcast and it has nine chapters in the first three, I'm having come out in this first season of The Hidden Scribes. And it was really important to me to kind of get this story out there and also kind of using it as an alternative route towards getting something sold. I felt like I could, it was hard to figure out how to put this in the hands of people that could actually do something with it. I was, and I went to this um, workshop where, you know, they were like, you know, be a content creator. And I had this story already. And I was like, yeah, that's actually a great idea. Like if I were to turn this into a podcast and, you know, get voice actors, um, behind it, uh, then this could actually be something. And I did, I got a phenomenal cast and I put it all together and I'll listen to it and I will cringe at the ways in which it's flawed and cringe and like, damn it, man, like this doesn't sound good. And like, you know, this wouldn't sound this way on Sarah's pod, for instance, or, (laughs) you know, blah, blah, blah. And like feel really, you know, reduced by that. And then I'll take a step back and I'll, you know, stop worrying about like all the places where it's failed. And I'll think about, but think about what this is, man. Like you got this many talented people uh, in large part because they felt really good about what you wrote to sign on to this and to say, yeah, no, I want to be a part of this. And when I listen to it, you know, I'm actually really proud of, of what I put out there despite its flaws. But I know that if I, that there's a part of me that just would have worked on the flaws and tried to fix those things or decide to scrap it and not put it out there because I didn't want that to, to represent me. But to your point, at the end of the day, I have to ask that I be represented more by the story and like, you know, the direction that I've provided and, you know, just ask for, you know, people's patience with with the audio because, you know, that's just going to kind of come with time. But if it's a story that they feel good about, you know, I'm, in part, I'm, I'm being unprofessional and asking them to to have patience with the audio because, you know, if, if you're if you're putting out a product, then, you know, it should be it should be clean. It, it should be good. But it, I also feel like it doesn't have to be, you know, beyond any uh, need of improvement for people to kind of attach to the story and feel like, oh, no, there's something here and, and feel good about that. There is. There's such a tension there. And I and I love that you bring that up between, you know, wanting it to be great and knowing that, like, hey, not everybody, you know, we're more than just one hit wonders, right? You, right. you can't just start out of the gate with, like, the truest masterpiece of all kind. You know, that's not what we're going for. We're creators. And I love that we're creators and this is us creating things and creation is messy and creation is organic and it's not something that it's just going to come right out of the gate being this like you know it's not the old man in the sea or you know whatever you hold up as (laughs) your your paragon of literature like no it's it's going to have flaws and it's going to be messy and um one of the coolest things to see is is if you read a lot of a certain author you can see them progress you can watch them in their work become better and better and better. And you just have to be okay with sort of exposing your own process through that. Very, very well said. And it can be, it can be tough. Um, but I think you said it best earlier, you know, just putting it out there 
you can still feel some of those recriminations about what wasn't done. But I think overall, once you have your work out there, I think you'll feel better for it. And so going back to your original question, like, you know, the whole aspect of getting started and being intimidated, you know, I would say the liberation of actually going public with your work is worth any any second guessing that you might afflict yourself with later. I'm taking a moment to write that down, the liberation of going public. Like, I know you can't see me because I turned the video off, but I've just been over here like <laughs> nodding, like, oh my gosh, that, that's so true. That is so true. You're, you're sort of releasing yourself from that prison of perfectionism and you're allowing yourself just to be okay with the creator that you are. And you're, you're giving yourself a little bit of grace and saying like, I made this and I'm going to share it and I'm going to get better as I go. But for now I'm sharing this and, and I, gosh, I love that. If people are interested in listening to Hidden Scribes or uh, checking out any of your other work, what do they do? Where do they go? How can they find you? So um, the Hidden Scribes is available on Google Play and Stitcher and iTunes podcast. And as a result of it being in those places, it's my understanding that you can find them pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. <laughs> but yeah, so you can find it in all those places. And the Storyform podcast of Trinity will actually be a separate podcast come next season where I'm going to drop all nine episodes all at one time. So the first three are on the Hidden Scribes feed right now. And then after these three are kind of out there and people hopefully are enjoying it and talking about it, I'm going to um, just drop the complete set of nine episodes, including the first three, um, all on a separate feed that um, and make that bingeable for people. And uh, that'll be happening um, in the fall. Those are the places right now where I would say and just kind of uh, – keep your ear out on uh, the Hidden Scribes podcast for updates about where you can find more. Wonderful. And I'll make sure to have links to the Hidden Scribes podcast and uh, your other properties in the show notes for today's episode. I'm also super excited about Trinity coming out as its own podcast. Holy cow. When that comes out, I want to just like boost the signal for that like crazy. So that's super exciting to know. I'd appreciate that. You are absolutely an inspiration in that regard. I, when I listened to Girl in Space, um, I was really floored by it. And you have two podcasts. And I was I, I was thinking at the time, I wasn't sure which route to go about should I just make it separate or um, should I combine them? And I felt like it'd be a good way to get eyes on both by combining them. But having Girl in Space and Right Now separate absolutely was like one of the things I thought about and deliberating about once that was done, the first season was done, how should I move forward? Should I continue with the current format or should I adapt it to something different? So thank you for being an inspiration to me in all things creative. Oh, so. oh gosh. Mark, <laughs> you're, you're wonderful. Thank you so much for your kind words. Also, um, dear listeners, Sarah's in the middle of a whiteout um, <laughs> at home. So she's doing this like underneath blizzard conditions. Um, but she's here to show up for you guys. You know, she doesn't take any days off now, so. I just wanted people to understand the duress that young Sarah is in while <laughs> she does this so nonchalantly. Mark, thank you so much for being an inspiration to so many people. Thank you for validating and giving a voice to so many people who would not have that otherwise. I love what you're doing, and I cannot wait to see where you go from here. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure. 